Mighty God and everlasting one, you are the creator of everything. In you, everything exists. You uphold all things. You have created the heavens, the highest heavens, and the earth, all for your glory, all to reflect your glory. And we ask, O Lord, as we look now to the first chapter of Genesis, that you would aid us in looking at the beginnings. We have all of this information from the last few weeks that we've been studying, uh, certain themes concerning the God of Genesis. Now we want to look at the text, Lord, and we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would aid us to understand some of the key ideas behind this first chapter. We would ask that you would aid us in the hearing of it, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and the preaching of it, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that these things would be done under your glory, and that we would learn something new of you today, in which we may be able to glory in you and love you in a greater way. We ask for your help in these things, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 1, all the way through to chapter 2, and verse 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and morning were the first day. Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament, divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and morning were the second day. Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and morning were the fourth day. Then God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves, with which the waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, 
and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the, sh- of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, To you it shall be for food, also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life. I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth, and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. May the Lord bless the reading of his word as we look at this particular section of the word of God. We enter into an exposition of Genesis and looking at how God created everything, and that he takes that which is formless, void, and creates something out of it. God, through his spirit, created the entire universe out of a dark chaos. He created the universe, and in doing so, there are some scientific ideas that stand behind that, but The scripture is not a scientific manual, although everything in it obviously demonstrates a scientific truth that it speaks to. But the idea of Genesis chapter 1 is not to give us a scientific record of every jot and tittle that we would like about the manner in which creation was done. It's a religious book, mainly. And it's demonstrating, in particular, and in being reminded that Moses is writing this, and that Moses is writing this after the Egyptian captivity and after the Israelites have come out of paganism, that Moses is writing this in a manner that demonstrates that God is the sovereign creator of all that exists. And the circumstances, the manner in which he did it, is the earth was chaotic and it was enveloped in darkness, but the Spirit of God was ensuring creation. And the wording of this first point reflects the interpretation that verse 1 is a summary statement and that verse 2 provides the circumstance in which or how which those things came to pass. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then after that, it describes the manner in which he did that. He transforms chaos into creation. 
the verb used to create here is used in Scripture exclusively for the creative activity of God, God's activity in creating. Humans may make things, they may form things, they may build things. To the Hebrew, however, God creates things. And the verb in and of itself doesn't mean that God, every time he does something like this, creates ex nihilo, or out of nothing, but it basically means, the verb basically means to produce something new, fresh and perfect. And in this verse, the verb refers to the activities of the six days to follow. God created, and here's what he did in creating. But there was nothing in the beginning except for God, and God brought life from nothing out of his sheer power, out of what we call his aseity or his self-being, the power of being. Everything is upheld by him. The first verse declares the message of the chapter in summary fashion. God created everything. God, plural, he, singular, is introduced as the one who existed before anything in the universe. And then he created what is called here the heavens, plural, and the earth, as we had looked at. The triune God creates a tri-universe. Other examples of this poetic kind of device are when he says day and night, which means all the time, or man and beast, meaning all created things, or heaven and earth, talks about not only heaven, but everything in creation. Not only the earth, but everything in creation. Genesis 2.4, as we'll find out next week, also uses this expression in a restatement of the work of creation throughout the six days. That God created everything. And he did this in the beginning. Bereshit. The beginnings, where the book of Genesis gets its name. It refers to the first phase of the step which is the beginning, in this case, of the universe as we know it. According to John 1.1, the word, he demonstrates there, the word was with God and created everything. The word was God. God precedes creation. John 1.1, in a sense, precedes Genesis 1.1 in the logical order of things. In the beginning was the word, as John explains it, but Moses here assumes it. He assumes God is. He doesn't begin by proving God. He says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He was. The point of the verse is that God is absolutely sovereign over all matter, over everything, unlike the pagan deities that the Egyptians would have worshipped. Such a sovereignty demands allegiance, for to acknowledge the Creator naturally leads to submission to the Creator. When God created the universe, it was in chaos. And he takes this chaos and he forms it into creation. It's clear from the contents of verse 2 that something's wrong. Or he, that's the way Moses writes it. He gives us this feeling like something isn't right. There's chaos going around here. The first states that the earth was waste and void, or formless and empty. Void is a relatively, actually it's a rare word, and it only occurs two other times in Scripture, in Jeremiah and Isaiah and the prophets, and it deals with the idea of waste. 
that God is angry with w- this waste or this nothingness or this chaotic aspect of what he's judging. In fact, the Jeremiah passage kind of creates an antithesis to creation. Because of God's judgment, he's going to take creation and rip it apart and destroy it. That kind of imagery is there, and that's what the idea of void means. In Isaiah 45:18, it says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited, I am the Lord and there is no other. So, in that way, we don't look at this formless and void aspect of things as kind of a step in creation. God didn't do it that way. Moses is talking about the manner in which he created, that here, here was the heavens and the earth created, here's what God did. He took this chaotic stuff and he fixed it. Not that it was, okay, I'm going to first create everything, And then the second step is I'm going to take this stuff and fix it. That's not the idea that Moses has behind writing this. What he's trying to demonstrate to us is that God took that which was chaos and made perfection. And it indicates that the world must be shaped and must be inhabited before it is pronounced good. He didn't pronounce good on the chaos. He didn't pronounce good on the formlessness. The narrative shows how God brought this world from its primitive condition to fullness and order. Not only the earth was waste and void, but according to the second clause in this particular verse, darkness was on the face of the deep. Darkness throughout the scriptures represents evil and death. And it's not conducive to life. Some uses of the motif of darkness include the plague of darkness in the land of Egypt, or those who are wicked, as in 1 Samuel 2.9. It demonstrates from the psalmist, wicked enemies are darkness. Job, in chapter 3, calls darkness death. And in Isaiah 13, it's the day of the Lord in judgment. It's always sort of bad stuff. Darkness is not positive good in Genesis. Rather, it's dispelled Darkness is dispelled at the very first act of creation. Darkness covers the face of home or the deep, or what the figurative language here means is the abyss, the deep, dark oceans of the abyss. In the first part of Genesis 1-2, there is this ominous, uncomfortable tone that we should get when we read it. And the clauses describe not the results of divine creation, but chaos at its earliest stage. And it really doesn't tell us how the chaos came about. It just says that God took that and fixed it. The Spirit of God ensures creation. In contrast to the first couple of verses, the third clause in the verse, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, not the abyss, the waters, The material is now not this darkness, this deathness, but now it's this life-giving water. It's not the chaotic, abyss-like deep. And the activity belongs to the Spirit of God, not some awesome wind as some people are trying to portray it. The verb basically means to stir up. It's like in Deuteronomy 32.11 where it describes an eagle stirring up its nest and fluttering over its young, protecting it. 
In the same way, the spirit is fluttering or protecting its creation in this way, and the unformed, lifeless mass of the watery earth is under the divine care of the spirit, who hovers over it and ensures its future development. And so what does he do? That's what we get the next few days from. In six days, God, by his powerful word, called into existence a perfect, harmonious, and fruitful creation to be enjoyed and ruled by human beings. That's where we go from verse 3 down to verse 31. In three days, God brought about order and form through his sovereign creative acts. The first three days remedy the formlessness of what was going on. In day one, God created light, and he sovereignly divided it from the darkness. At the beginning of the account, the reader learns that the means of creation is the word of God. God speaks, this divine fiat, he speaks, and it's so. And he said, sets the tone and emphasis throughout the chapter, and actually basically the rest of biblical revelation, when we deal with John chapter 1 or 1 Corinthians 8 or Colossians 1, it's all done by the power of his word. What God said in his creative decree makes the point more striking. Let there be, and then the text says, and there was, throughout the rest of the chapter. The verbs here are related to God's holy name. Specifically, surrounding his power, Yahweh, or as we sometimes sing, Jehovah. Those words are basically the same word, same idea, which means I am. In Exodus 3.14, God is known as I am. In here, let there be is Yehi, which is of like Yahweh, and Wahi, which is also like Yahweh. It's these being verbs, these being words. It's not surprising that John records that Jesus Christ is the Word of God, who, by that Word, created everything. And in Genesis, Israel learns that the Word of the Lord is the powerful, transforming Word that manifests itself first in creation. That which God calls into existence is everything. The first thing he does is light. Immediately changing a world that's enveloped in darkness with light. It's a natural light, it's a physical light, but it's even a little more than that. The Bible shows again and again that light and darkness signify mutually exclusive realms. Light and darkness. You have been translated from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of light. Throughout the scripture, light is the realm of God and the righteous. Darkness is the dominion of the evil one and death. Life represents that which is holy, pure, true, life-giving, gladdening, exciting. For example, when God brought the judgment of darkness on Egypt, Israel enjoyed light in their dwellings in Exodus 10. When Israel followed the Lord's light through the wilderness by night, they were assured of his presence. When they were instructed to keep the lamps burning in the holy place, they knew that there was something symbolic about that light. The act of creating light in the darkened arena of the world, God manifests his will and his nature. Pure, perfect, holy light. And after the creation of light, God announces evaluation of it. What he does is good. 
Everything he does is good. And the idea of the word good is that it's useful, it's fitting, it's healthy. That which is good is conducive for and enhances life. So light is good, and the darkness is not. Yet, the darkness remains. But, God divides the two. From the beginning, God's people would learn that God makes divisions. God separates things. Separates the good from the evil. In Israel's law, the Lord would make divisions between the holy and the profane. Between the holy place and the most holy place. And in fact, even between men. Between Israel and the nations. After the light and the darkness attained their separate areas... Then God called them day and night. The work of creation that God did in the beginning by the word of his power, which he created everything, was in the space of six days. He doesn't say in the space of six nights. He does it in the space of six days. Day and night make up some of those days, but the idea is that day is the light. And he names everything. The act of naming And the ancient Near East was an act of sovereign dominion, often associated with creation. Later, God entrusts some of that dominion to those who represent his image in the garden, as Adam names the animal, as Adam names Eve. There is dominion. In the second day, God created the sky and sovereignly separated the waters above and below it. There was a heavy mist, a thick fog, all around the earth. He created an expanse, an atmosphere, to separate the waters above from the waters below. The word here is firmament. It actually comes from a Latin word which means solid. And it's poetically described in different places throughout the scriptures as a tent curtain or a veil. Or even in Exodus, it's described as a clear pavement like sapphire, whatever that means. And even molten glass in Job. So it was this expanse that covered God's creation. It was something in the atmosphere that he had put together and was necessary in the progress of creation to sustain life. Up to that point, the atmosphere may have been like some kind of dense fog or something like that. But then he separated it so that there was this tent curtain around the earth. And with the creation of the expanse, God set a division between the cloud masses above and the waters below. And the text reports that it happened as God decreed it, and it was so. The word so is much stronger than sometimes it may seem. It means that, like an established thing, the light and darkness found their fixed place in the order of creation. God set them there. It was so. And the creation of the expanse, it's actually not called good, because God isn't finished just yet with it. He sovereignly appears in this particular day's activity in his naming the expanse heavens and also has control over their dominion in separating it. He controlled it. And really the theological significance of this teaching involves Israel's confidence in the Lord as God is the supreme God of the heavens and the earth, creator of all things, in comparison to the pagan gods that they would have come out from among, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. In day three, God created sea and dry land and sovereignly blessed the earth. On the third day, he caused the dry land to appear, and he flourished it with growth. And the emphasis shifts 
from bringing order now to bringing fullness. And God continues his work of bringing order to creation by decreeing that the fertile land appears and that the seas come together in these reservoirs, in these bodies. And in this report, we learn that God set the boundaries for the seas, demonstrating his sovereign control over them as well. Think of, think of Moses writing this to an Egyptian, like a letter. The Israelites coming out of that land, really seeing the God of the Nile, and the God of the frogs, and the God of the insects, and all of these different gods that they had. Here, God is supremely sovereign. And he causes the vegetation to come here, to grow. And he, de- he gathers together the seas and he decrees that the land produce all its fruit, all its vegetation. And then we have three more days which God brings forth fullness and harmony when he first creates in day four the luminaries in the heavens. They govern the temporal order. They govern the day and the night that God has created. Sun, moon, and stars to rule over the heavens. The language here describes that the sun is not in the atmosphere, it's far beyond it, but it appears to be in the heavens, and their function is to dominate the day and the night, to serve as signs for fixed seasons and to rule over the heavens. There are going to be certain times of sacrifice and certain seasons of jubilee and certain times of rejoicing. These are set for that religious purpose. Moreover, both earthly and heavenly bodies are all subject to the will of the Creator. They are a witness to the glory of God. As we will sing Psalm 19 in closing today, Psalm 19 states that the heavens declare the glory of God. To look to the sun or the stars should direct the believer's thoughts to the Creator and what he's done. But, as Romans 1 tells us, most humans often rejected the Creator and worshipped the creation instead, which is exactly what the Egyptians did. In day five, God created animal life for sea and sky and sovereignly blessed them with fruitfulness. He created all the living creatures that inhabit those places. And the passage declares that life came into being by the direct command of God. Not just now plants and, and, and seas and, and lands and he- actual living things. And vegetation is not included here because for the Hebrew, that's not life. Life resides in the living creatures that God makes. Although the verses themselves are concerned with general categories of living things, certain things are singled out for special attention, like the great sea creatures that we see also spoken out throughout the Old Testament. Why? Because the pagans worshipped great sea creatures as dragons and monsters in the rebellion. Moses demonstrates that. So God creates life for the land, and then he creates human life for his service. The sixth day reveals both the culmination and the goal of creation. After bringing order, after bringing fullness to creation, God created human life to enjoy it, and to rule it, and to inhabit it. He creates the animals on the earth, all according to their kinds, all according to their species. That's why you don't see, you know, dogs and giraffes making a mix between them. It doesn't work that way. It's impossible. Humans, though, are far more important in this narrative than the animals are. 
The text shows that human life was set apart to be in relation to God according to a divine plan. Let us make man according to the pattern in our image and according to the purpose to have dominion. The expression, let us make man, introduces the climax of God's created activity. As we've talked about, when God triune created men, triune, husband, wife, and children. On the earth, the divine pattern is that human life, male and female and children, are the image of God and demonstrate who he is. And righteousness and holiness and truth. The term likeness and image, image is used in the Old Testament for actual shapes of idols and pictures. The term likeness is more abstract and refers more to like a similarity, like a man in that way. Like when Ezekiel uh, talks about, I saw one like a man. It's kind of like a similarity too. The image has been explained in a number of ways, but it demonstrates that human life and holiness and righteousness and truth with dominion over the animals is the image that God created man in. Human life, male and female, has the great capacity and responsibility to be image bearers. They produce life, their own spiritual, physical life. If humans are to imitate God, then creating is a basic part of that task. A man and woman can produce a living soul as God allows that to be the case. The privilege is part of their blessing from God, and a blessing that includes a divine enablement to do so. For believers, childbirth is an act of worship in many ways, a sharing in the work of God, the one who created life. But they're also to have dominion over the earth. And the terms suggest putting down the opposition. Subduing the earth was not going to be necessarily a cakewalk. It was going to be difficult to do that. But that was their anticipation. And it also perhaps anticipates subduing the earth in the anticipation of the conflict with evil that we're going to see in Genesis chapter 3 in which they utterly failed at. The Westminster Larger Catechism describes the image of God in men in this way. After God had made all the other creatures, he created man, male and female, formed the body of the man of the dust of the ground and the woman of the rib of man, endowed them with a living, reasonable, and immortal soul, made them after his own image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and dominion over the creatures, yet subject to fall. That was the state of Adam and Eve, the first creatures, the first human beings that God created. So, in conclusion of all these things, God then blessed the seventh day because on it he ceased from all his creative work. He did not cease from his sustaining work, but he did cease from his creating work. By the seventh day, God had completely finished everything, and this became a sign of the Sinaitic covenant that the Israelites would go into and ultimately be demonstrated by Hebrews 4 as the rest which we enjoy on, in fact, this very Lord's Day. The repetition in this last section of the narrative stresses the culmination of everything 
And the key word that we should focus in on this particular aspect of the chapter is the word rest. It actually means not just simply cease, but putting down a certain work to pick up another kind of work. On the seventh day, God not only ceased from his work of creation, but he sanctified it. He did something positive. He still did something. The day belongs to him in a certain special manner. And those who enjoy the Sabbath rest set apart to God and must set apart their activities to men and pick up God's work instead of their work. Those who enjoy Sabbath rest find that God, by his powerful word, transforms the chaos of creation into a holy and blessed creation. The truth is basic and fundamental to the creation narrative. It's what Moses goes for as the climax of this first section. God then rests and is sanctifying rest on this special day. Now that is what the text is about. And I want to take from there three short points. Three topics, so to speak, of which you'll be familiar with, but as a reminder to demonstrate the reality of this passage and kind of bring it home to us. First, God is a redeeming God. God takes things that are dark and void and formless and he makes something of them. Christ took a few loaves and some fish and he fed thousands of people with them. Little in God's hands is always much. And in making something of anything, God demonstrates himself as a redeemer. He is the God of reversals. That which is dark, he makes light. That which is fallen, he redeems. That which is broken, he fixes. That which is spiraling into the abyss, he takes and makes living water. So I want you to be reminded that God is a redeeming God. Secondly, God is God. Idols are not God. Again, remember that Moses is writing this narrative in contrast to the illicit paganism of the day, demonstrating that God is the sovereign creator over all the earth, over all matter. The gods of the people were only sovereign over little compartments of life. If you wanted children, you'd have to go over to the fertility god. If you wanted to worship the god of the Nile, well, you worshiped the god of the Nile. He was over the rivers. He didn't have any power over the land, but only over that compartment. And those gods were wooing and drawing the allegiance of the Israelites into them. But Moses is saying that in this creation narrative, God is in control of everything. And the allegiance of the Israelites is to him and him alone. The significance of the point stands prominently in the activities of Israel. Their religious experience from Egypt realized that out of darkness, out of chaos, out of this chaotic pagan world, God brought them into existence as a people, teaching them the truth by his word, distinguishing that truth from error, providing an abundance for them, commissioning them to be his representatives, and promising them rest. That's what the passage is trying to teach us. Dominion, fruitfulness, and rest would be theirs in the land of promise. The world, though, is filled with pagan gods and pagan ideas. Israel knew that they were created by the true God and that God will defile 
the pagan gods in the process of establishing this Sabbath rest, of which all of the creation waits for. All of the creation is waiting to get to the ultimate Sabbath rest, of which the Lord's Day is only a glimmer of. We want to enter into His rest. The point is that the powerful Word was the agent of creation and demonstrates that they must always obey that sovereign God in His Word. Thirdly, creation is a type of redemption. The narrative here is prophetical. It demonstrates in many ways Christ to come. Christ is typified here. Creation was made, but it was void, it was dark, it was formless, and the Spirit provided hope for the dark world and applied to the Word of God a redemption of it, and everything that he made was very good. But what did he do with, with Mary? What did he do with the Incarnation? In the very same language of hovering over the waters, the Spirit overshadows Mary, and he forms in Mary's womb, the Christ. How was creation made? It was made through the Word. Christ is the Word. How was creation demonstrated as good? By the light of God. Christ is the light of the world. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Hebrews 11.3 it says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen, which are not made, of things which are visible, but made from God's word, from his power. Christ himself is the word, and he brings forth the light of truth. When Christ was born, light came into the world. For, uh, John chapter 1 and verse 9 says, That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Even in looking upon the lights that govern the day and night, the greater light and the lesser light, there is Christ the great light and his people, the church, the lesser light which reflects his glory. That's what we are to do. That's what the moon does. When you look at the moon in the sky, it's not that the moon has some illuminary about it. It's not a sun. It's reflecting the light of the sun. Christ gives his people life, as in creation, where in each day God gives life to the land, the sea, and the air. He gives us life. So let's summarize the text in this way, and then briefly apply it to us. Out of the dark and chaos, God sovereignly and majestically created, by the word, the entire universe in six days, bringing about perfect order, an abundant fullness through the Holy Spirit for people to enjoy and to rule, and then blessed and sanctified the seventh day with marked the completion of creation. Now, the New Testament uses the concept of Sabbath rest in a physical and spiritual sense. We as believers have ceased from our labors and should enter into the divine rest, which Hebrews 4 speaks greatly about, of which the Sabbath is a picture of that rest. There remains a rest in the world to come, and we look forward to that day. But even now, we have a rest that demonstrates who God is and what we are before him. We long for that day, 
We long for the day when Christ returns and we're done with the toil of these bodies and the toil of this earth and the sin and the pain and the suffering and affliction and everything that we go through here. How we should desire to be in that rest that creation is moving and progressively going to. Jesus has entered his rest. He's there now. He's rest from his labors. We should so desire to do so as well. And we learn then from the creation account that God, by his powerful word, creates, redeems, and sanctifies. It's exactly what he did in creation. Either by the written word or the word preached, that is what transforms men into his glorious image. It's impossible to read the creation narrative and sit there and meditate it on some time and thinking about God's power to take that which is dark and void and nasty and create out of it that which is living water. And what did Christ say? Out of us would flow the abundance of living water. In this, and in this way, there is a copy of regeneration. There is a copy of how the Spirit blows on whom he wishes in the same way that he blows in creation and creates and hovering over the water. That's what Jesus explains in John 3. He uses that same imagery. Sanctification, after creation was made, and for all intents and purposes regenerated, the Spirit molded it and fashioned it. It's a picture. Creation itself is a picture of our salvation, of our regeneration, in sanctification. And that God is a redeeming God who changes darkness to light, death to life, and chaos for us to blessing. In your own personal life, maybe there are chaotic things that are going on. Maybe there's something that you need to give over to the Creator. Christ can take that which is chaotic and send forth a spirit to renew and redeem. There's nothing, as we even read in Matthew today, there's nothing too hard for the Lord. He took the primeval mess and turned it into something beautiful. We live in the midst of this fallen, nasty world that death is on every corner as a result of the fall. But God is in the act of consistently restoring and bringing back to us a state of perfection in Jesus Christ. We have to trust God not the enticements of the world, not the psychology that the world would like us to know about the manner in which we should fix our problems. We're not going to listen to Dr. Phil and Oprah on those things. We're going to trust God because in those things, he is able, through his word, to change our heart, to change our mind, to change us so that we might be glorifying to him. God is absolutely sovereign over all of life. But pagan ideas still try to infiltrate our lives, our homes, our children. What is set before our senses? What is set in our hearts? What contends for your allegiance? There's something out there that contends for your allegiance. The pagan gods of Egypt contended for the allegiance of the Israelites. For us here, what contends for your allegiance? What pulls you or desires to pull you away from God? Because every vice that is out to seduce our hearts and remove us away from Christ and toward the world is what Moses is trying to show you in the manner in which creation is what it is. God is sovereign. We should listen to him, not to those things 
that try to pull us away from him. Our culture is a vanity fair in and of itself, but God beckons us to trust him and not to an idol, because his ways are very good, and he is the sovereign creator of all things. May we be blessed by Genesis chapter 1 and the teachings that God would have us understand in them. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask that he would bless us in hearing the word in this way. Mighty Lord, we, we are here in the world. And in the world, O oh God, we see your creation all around us. In the world, O oh God, we see the sun, we see the moon, we see the stars. We see everything. We see that you are, by the very act of creation, the sovereign God of the universe. Your invisible attributes and divine qualities are demonstrated in creation. You are the supreme one, the universe. And yet, Lord, we are so foolish. We let little things, little idols, pull us away from you. Help us, as we read Genesis chapter 1, help us to meditate and see that you being the sovereign creator, our allegiance should be to you. Not to the paganism of the world, not to these silly little idols that we think are so important, especially to our own self-love. We pray, O oh God, that you would remove those influences around us and cause us to set our allegiance to you and to you alone. That we would desire, O oh Lord, to be around your people, to hear your word, to read your word, to pray together with the saints, to come together to love you, to worship you, to adore you, and demonstrate each Lord's Day a glimmering of that Sabbath rest in which we so long that you would come, that you would roll back the sky as a scroll, that Christ would bring his people away, that we would have creation changed and renewed and finally sanctified, that we might worship and adore you for all eternity. We so wait for that day, and we ask that you would help us in these things. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, 
from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.